Thank you. Thanks, worship team. That was awesome. Great time of worship. Um, welcome, everyone. It's great to be up here again. Uh, my name's Simon Hermel. I'm uh, one of the elders here at uh, Hills Baptist. Um, if you weren't here last week, you missed a, a great sermon from Dave. Um, and it, it was an introduction to the sermon series we're currently on uh, called uh, Mosaic, the Hidden Message of Matthew 1. Now, as you, as you all know Dave, you would know that it's very hard to sum up one of Dave's sermons, um, and I won't be able to do it justice, but basically he taught us uh, that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, and every pen stroke has been placed there for a reason. However, the Bible was written by man, and so each author has a slightly different approach to telling their story, and they use different styles, different imagery, and different techniques to give their story a meaning. Now, uh, Dave led us through Matthew's genealogy, uh, and he pointed out that although it may look like a, he used to describe it as a boring boiled egg, it is in fact a sweet, rich lemon meringue pie. You have to listen to his sermon to see how he got to that uh, analogy, but... Um, uh, he, um, yeah, he showed us that in many ways Matthew's genealogy looks just like uh, any other Jewish genealogy, but as we look deeper, we find that he has purposely and carefully crafted it to make a statement about who Jesus is, and um, one of the biggest talking points of the genealogy is the, the, the point that uh, he added five women's names to the genealogy, the names of Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, and, and Mary. Now, this is unheard of in, in Jewish culture. You don't add women to a genealogy. And the five women that he mentioned were, would immediately have invoked a reaction in the Jewish reader, because these women weren't, um, weren't just whip, normal women. They were generally looked down upon um, in the Jewish custom. They were widows, they were Gentiles, they were prostitutes. And yet they somehow came to play a significant role in the line of Judah, the tribe that fathered all the kings of Israel. So Dave summarized that through the genealogy, Matthew is pointing out to his Jewish readers that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. He's the new Adam, the offspring of Eve. Um, in Genesis 3, that God says will crush the serpent's head. He has come to bring in the new Genesis, the new creation. And, um, sorry, I've just lost where I am. Um, he hasn't come to, to, to be a mighty warrior like Israel was expecting. He's come to bring in a, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, I think, before I keep going, I'm going to raise this up because that's why I lost where I am. So this morning, I have the privilege of taking you through the story of Tamar, and it really is a privilege. Um, when, I won't lie that when I first read through the chapter that I, I needed to, to share on today, um, I thought it had been stitched up. It was a, bit of a, it was a genuine stitch up. Um, out of the five women in Matthew's genealogy, I thought I had the dud. Um, <laughs> if Matthew 1 looked like a boiled egg, then... It looked like someone just plonked a piece of rotting fruit on my plate in front of me. And I, it's a, it is a confronting story, and we'll, we'll get into it shortly, and I think you agree with me. Um, at first glance, 
it's quite confronting. Um, but before we do that, let, let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, for the songs we sang this morning, um, that out of our brokenness, Father, that you turn things into beauty. And, and I thank you for this story because it, it symbolizes that message, Father, that, that through our brokenness, through humanity's brokenness, you can turn it, you can craft it and turn it into a beautiful story of, of redemption, of grace and mercy. And Father, I just pray that um, you would enable me to, to bring this message and that your spirit would speak through this message into the hearts of those listening and, and that you'll do a good work in us today. In Jesus' name. Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, So Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adilamite, whose name was Harar. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called her... Uh, he called his name Ur. She conceived again and, uh, and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he, knew, he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was uh, comforted, he went up to Timnah to his his sheep shearers, he and his friend Harah the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance of Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she... Uh, was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil, She put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enium on the roadside? 
And they said, no cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cold prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify these, uh, who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. And he did not know her again. When the time, came, uh, time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Anyone agree? <laughs> um, so when we talk about interpreting the author's intent, it's pretty clear that the author has not tried to soften anything in this story. In fact, he's almost explicit in how he depicts the men in Judah's family and their selfishness and self-sexual immorality. But the more I came to look into this story, the more I fell in love with it. This is a real story. I think we can all identify with the gritty brokenness of this story, but it's also a powerful story. The best stories are the stories where there's, there's the tension and drama and build-up, where everything is on the line and somehow the hero comes through unscathed. Now, God is the best storyteller of all, and in this story, we see another example of how God takes our brokenness and our sin and he turns it around into something beautiful. Who's a cricket fan here? Um, anyone watch The Ashes? It was a good series, wasn't it? Uh, I'm not going to pretend like I'm a, a massive cricket guru. In fact, I'm actually pretty rubbish at cricket. Um, the only thing I'm good at is fielding. Uh, hence why the thing I love most about cricket are the classic catches. Um, anyone love a good classic catch? Raise it, yep. Thanks, great. Um, so, the best is the, sort of similar to a, a story. The best classic catch is when everything is on the line, the character has to throw his body, um, put everything on the line, and, and he just, just catches that ball. Now, I have a classic catch story, um, but it wasn't catching a ball. It was uh, catching my only son, Seth. Um, so we, as a family, we went to the Charleston playground back probably about seven years ago. Um, Seth was two and a half years old. And uh, we, we arrived there, and, and I did what a good father does. I, I followed Seth around as he investigated um, all the, the play equipment. Uh, and he came to a, a slippery dip or a slide. Um, and the, I don't know if ever, anyone knows the playground at Charleston, but 
the slide there is, is one of the old relics slides from, from the bygone era uh, where speed and distance was the focus and safety was uh, nil. There was no safety whatsoever. Um, so Seth, uh, he was only two and a half and he started to climb the ladder. And uh, being a good dad, I, I started to encourage him. And, and uh, he obviously enjoyed the encouragement. He kept going. And, and before I knew it, I was so caught up in him climbing the ladder. Before I knew it, he almost reached the top. Now, the, it, the, it was actually like literally that tall um, with one of those really like long, thin metal slides and uh, that they go shooting off um, the, the other end. So when he reached the top, um, I, I, I kind of caught me off guard and I realized that if he was going to actually slide down, he was going to go sliding down and shoot off the end without me being able to catch him. And, and so I was here and, and I walked, I, I quickly started walking around um, to make sure that I could catch him before he came off off the end. And I, I got halfway down the slide and Seth, I just realized that he, he got to the top and he realized he was a lot higher than he was expecting. And instead, he, he was, there was no way he was going down that slide. He started to step backwards and he was standing up. And so I was halfway down the slide. He was standing up and it was a, a straight drop back the way that he was coming. And so I, I turned and I started running back, and I hadn't, I hadn't made it yet, and he took one extra step, and he just fell straight backwards. And he, he just, yeah, he didn't know what he was doing. And, and he, he didn't fall towards me, he fell away from me, so I, I literally had to take some very fast steps, and, and I reached out, I didn't have time to get two hands, I reached out with one hand, and I grabbed whatever I could of him. And I... I I grabbed his clothes and literally the, the cuff of his shorts got caught in my two little fingers. And, and I don't know how, it must have been a miracle because <laughs> I, I managed to slow him down enough to then be able to pull him up and his head, he was upside down, his head literally got that close to the ground before I was able to pull him up, pull him into my arms and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was crying. Um, and I looked around, and no one saw it. <laughs> my classic, my one classic catch, uh, and no one saw it. Um, now, if you're mandatory child notifier, um, please hold to the end before you uh, make that notification. But um, who, who knows what it's like to have that experience of falling? Uh, in, just in life, you know, you, you're traveling in one direction, things are looking pretty hopeless, and then all of a sudden something happens and you find yourself safe and sound in a completely different environment and you wonder how it happened. Who uh, loved hearing Joel's, Joel's testimony a few weeks ago? Um, if you haven't heard it, get on, get on the, the podcast and listen to it. It's an awesome story. Um, and he tells a very similar story of how he was traveling in one direction and uh, he quite, God quite literally stopped him in his tracks using a, a truck and, uh, 
and he, he, it turned him around, not just physically, it turned him around spiritually as well. And, and this is what this story is actually about. I know it's surprising, but this is, this is a turning point for Judah. So as I mentioned earlier, part of interpreting the Bible is looking at the story and looking at what the author is trying to tell us by looking at the cultural style and the language. So understanding Tamar uh, is, is the same. And, and I want us to go back just a few chapters just to set the context. So if we go back to Genesis 35 and we read from verse 9. Sorry, Roz, I didn't warn you about this, but I'll, I'll just read it out. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram... I have no idea if I'm getting any of these right. <laughs> uh, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come fr- from you and, a- and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I'll give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at that place where he had talked with him. So in this passage, we hear God's promise to Jacob. But if we don't look closely, we miss a command. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. What would Jacob immediately be reminded of when he heard this phrase? He would, be, he would remember all the way back to Genesis 1:28, God's mandate to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. God's reminding Jacob of his creation and what he created humanity to be. And I think it's important for me to highlight this because of the sexual nature of this text. Um, the creation of the world stemmed from the perfect love that existed between God the Father and God the Son and the Spirit. He created us in His image and He desired for us to participate with Him in His creation and in His dominion of the world. Therefore, He gave humanity the gift of sex to be enjoyed within that context of marriage so that we could procreate with God, participate in His creation. He makes it really clear in Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And I want you to remember that line, they become one flesh. All right, so let's move on to chapter 37. Um, This is the chapter before our passage and I'll just sum it up because it's important for us to see it's a story of Joseph And it's one of the better known stories of the Old Testament. We know that Joseph becomes the envy of his brothers, so much so that they want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery and tell their father Jacob that he was killed by a wild animal. Just like most other stories in the Bible, we see just in a few chapters of God's loving and affirming promise to his people, we see that their hatred, their bitterness and their lies threaten to tear the entire family apart. And we begin to wonder again, what hope do these people have of becoming a nation worthy of God? Now, it's at this point, right in the middle of Joseph's story, that verse 38 happens. And it's quite an odd place to to put it. We're just getting into Joseph's story, 
and the author jumps into Judah's story for one single chapter, which at best seems to have no relevance to the story, but even more, it depicts an even more concerning picture of the state of Jacob and his children. So why is the author doing this? This is not a mistake. It's not poor literature. The author has done this for a reason. He's getting our attention. So I think one of, it's safe to say one of the reasons the author has put this story here is to show us that what could have been if Joseph wasn't sold into slavery, if he didn't get taken away into Egypt, and if Jacob's family had remained in Canaan. They would have been surrounded by the Canaanites. And the Jewish reader, as soon as they hear of Canaanite, um, it's never good news. Never in the Bible when Canaan, Canaanites are mentioned, it's good news. It's like um, the, the, the Canaanites in the Bible are like the orcs in the Lord of the Rings. There's no redeeming features. And, and we know that the Canaanites worshipped gods like Baal and Asherah, and their te- temple worship involved temple prostitu- prostitution, self mutilization and in times of great need, they would even sacrifice their own children. So these were wicked, evil people. And if we, we actually see that God has used Joseph and, he, and what appears to be a bad story of him being sold into slavery, and he's used him to, to lead Jacob and his sons out of that environment, away from the influence and temptations of, of Cain, the Canaanites. But there's also a, a much bigger, deeper story going on. This story is about the make or break of the line of Judah. It's the make or break of the royal bloodline of the Jews. So let's jump in. So there is a lot happening in that first few verses, and I'd love to go into more detail in, about it, but we won't get through the full story if I do. So I'm going to sum up. Judah and his brothers have just betrayed their brother, and they've lied to their father, and Jacob is not taking the news well. He is bitterly upset, uh, and he, he's saying he will not get over the death of Joseph um, for the rest of his life. He's going, to, he's going to die mourning his son. Now, Judah is feeling the heavy burden of this guilt and he's, he's ashamed and so essentially, rather than face the consequences, he runs away from his responsibility, he runs away from his family and he falls into um, a, a bad influence in Harar. So he's, uh, he, without his father's permission... He takes a Canaanite woman uh, to be his wife. Now, again, he's marrying a Canaanite woman. That should, be, that should mean alarm bells um, for us. And we see very soon after that those alarm bells come true, Judah reaps what he sows. He has three sons, and the first two are wicked in the eyes of the Lord. It's not mentioned what Ur's wickedness was, but the Bible commentators suggest that Ur and Onan would have been fully engaged, or, or most likely were fully engaged in the worship practices of the Canaanite culture, including the temple worship and the sexual immorality. Some commentators suggest that Judah, 
choosing Ur's wife would appear to be his, a reaction to his son's wickedness. You see, Tamar's name in Hebrew means palm tree, which is, as, it's actually in the Hebrew, the, the palm tree is a symbol of righteousness. Um, because of its, its height, it's, it's upright, it's straight, and it, and it gives good fruit, good, healthy fruit. Um, so the author is, is su- suggesting that, that Tamar is a righteous woman, and Judah um, potentially has, has chosen her to try and bring his son back um, from his wickedness. This clearly doesn't work, as God promptly puts her to death for his wickedness. Now, the practice, of, uh, the practice of a younger brother taking his older deceased brother's wife may seem strange to us, uh, may seem, yeah, it's unheard of. Um, but in ancient times, keeping the bloodline pure in a clan um, is really important. Um, so this is actually normal practice, and we see later on when the Mosaic law comes, that, that the, um, there's law for um, brothers to marry um, deceased brothers' wives. Um, and it's... So it's usual practice that Judah and his sons were responsible for b- providing an heir for Tamar. Um, firstly, so that she wouldn't remain... Uh, or firstly, she would have a child... Um, and that she would have, she she would not be a widow. So it's called leveret marriage, and e- before the Mosaic law, even in ancient times, it's it's not unusual. Well, I don't know unusual. It's not unlawful um, for even the the step the father-in-law to marry um, or or to to give his um, his son son's wife a child. Does that make sense? Good. <laughs> um, so where was I? So Onan fails to fulfill his duty to Tamar. His wickedness is really clear. He chooses to have his way with her, but then purposely prevents her from getting pregnant with the clear intention of keeping her childless. And we see again, for his wickedness, he is also put to death. Ona's behavior is pretty confronting, isn't it? We can sometimes be surprised when we read these stories in the Bible. But should we be? I don't think we should be. See, we live in a perverse and sexually immoral culture. And every day we are confronted with a worldview that says that this behavior is just part of living a carefree, pleasurable life. But it's actually just people running away from God and people running from their responsibility. So, so our world out there tells us that we are gods, says that I'm the most important person in the world and I can do whatever I want as long as it makes me happy and I don't hurt anyone else doing it. And social media at the moment, I'm not saying all social media is bad, but how often does the world turn social media into their little place of worship? And they worship themselves and others on Facebook, on the news, on Instagram, on Tinder, and in, in pornography, and everything else that's on the internet. 
Now, we have a lot to get through, and, I, and I'd love to go, uh, there's probably a, another sermon here, um, but I want to touch, I want to go back to Genesis 2-4 and make a really simple point about what the Bible says about sex. And it's, it's based on that last line, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. Completely committed, completely united. Sex is a good gift, but it's much more than just pleasure. It's about a deep love. It's about honour, and it's about service. It's not about getting something for ourselves. It's about totally, totally surrendering ourselves emotionally and physically, to one person for the purpose of participating in God's creation, in in procreation. In other words, the moment we separate ourselves from someone, whether that's physically or emotionally, and whether that's... that, That includes our wife or our husband. Once we separate ourselves, they become an object. They become an idol and we use them as an instrument for our pleasure. And it's broken, and it's fleeting, and it doesn't satisfy. We try and deny it, the world tries to deny it, but this is sin. And it's not out there, it's, it's in here. All of us at one time or another has turned someone into an object of pleasure. It may not have eventuated into the kind of sexual depravity that we read in this story, but because of our fallen nature, it still happens in here and in here. And perhaps this is one of the reasons why marriage in our Western culture is falling apart. And this heart problem is what Matthew is addressing in his book. He's saying that a warrior king that Israel was anticipating would never be sufficient to fix the problem of what's in here, of our broken humanity. The king that was coming would have to come and find a way to bridge the divide that sin had caused, to bring true peace, to bring true and perfect relationship with God and with each other. He would need to find a way to purify humanity from the inside out. And that's the the message that Matthew is telling his Jewish his Jewish friends. So we see that Judah, let's go back to the story, we see that Judah fails to take responsibility for his son's wickedness and instead he chooses to treat Tamar as a bad omen. He doesn't allow Shelah, his youngest son, to perform his duty with her. Um, It may not seem like much of an injustice to us but to Tamar, it was a huge injustice to to not allow her to have a a child. And it was purely to protect any wickedness being exposed in Shelah. So Tamar knows that she is at great risk of being left as a widow her entire life. To be a childless widow in those times was a shameful and lonely existence and, and without hope. So Tamar makes a desperate decision. She either finds a way to trick Judah into providing her with the inheritance that he is withholding from her, or she dies a poor, lonely widow. Now, through this story, Judah's life continues to spiral out of control. 
and we find he not only loses his sons, but he loses his wife as well. Once he's finished grieving for his wife, he goes with his friend Hurrah to go sheep shearing, and clearly Hurrah's reputation for getting involved um, with prostitutes is well known to, to pretty much everyone in the town. Because Tamar immediately suspects that Judah uh, will also likely be led astray. And she sees this as her, her one opportunity. She dresses as a prostitute and she waits on the side of the road for Judah, who is possibly drunk, to come and see out her service, seek out her services. Now, Judah doesn't have payment, and so Tamar asks him for a pledge. Pledge, And this is a crucial moment in the story, because if we miss the imagery in, in this part of the story, we, we miss the significance of, of the event. As a pledge, Judah gives Tamar his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, these things aren't just throwaway items. These are deeply personal to Judah, and a represents all that he is giving away. So the signet would have been a ring or an amulet with a symbol unique to Judah. And he would have used that to mark and identify identify property that belonged to him. The cord would have been a custom-made article of clothing and and a cord represented a bond, something that, that connected two things together. And Judah's staff would have been uniquely hand carved by him. And he would have been able to identify it immediately. And in those days, a staff was a symbol of someone's authority. It would be like us hand... Well, a license isn't a symbol of authority, but, it, but what he gave to Tamar would, would have been like us handing over our passport or our driver's license. But can you see that imagery there? It's powerful imagery. Judah is taking his identity his authority and his bond and he's handing it over to a woman that he believes is a Canaanite prostitute. Now, in Jewish custom, you can't get much lower than that. For a Jewish reader, this would have been deeply disturbing. And this is where the story starts to escalate. Can you see how far Judah has fallen? Could he have committed any greater act of sin and rebellion against his God? He is in the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has grown up with stories of God's faithful promise to him and to his family, and yet he's thrown it away to bond himself with a temple prostitute. There should be no going back from that moment. Judah is falling, he is heading headfirst to the ground, and there doesn't appear to be anyone around to catch him. And it's clear that Judah knows his sin, and he's later ashamed of his actions because he sends Hurrah to, to pay for pr- the prostitute. And when she can't be found, instead of hunting for the, his personal belongings, he would rather pretend that it didn't happen and he would rather let those things, his personal belongings, be lost forever. But it gets even more scandalous Three months later, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And what's his reaction? After all his ill treatment of Tamar, after all his own sinful behavior, 
his own infidelity, instead of showing some leniency and forgiveness for Tamar's infidelity, he demands the most serious punishment for her. He demands her to be burnt to death. Now, who loves a good twist in a story? I'm one of those people, and, and so at this moment, this is one of, yeah, the best twists I've seen. Um, this is why I love this story. So this is the part we also see Tamar's true character. Because as, as Judah's accusing her and asking her to, to be burnt, instead of accusing him back and treating him the same way that he treated her, she says, I am pregnant by the man who owns these. She doesn't say his name. And then she adds, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So let's just pause. This is, this is it. This is the moment. And this is huge. Tamar puts the ball back in Judah's court. She gives him all the power And Judah has a massive choice to make. He could deny the seal, the cord and the staff is his. And he could stick to his guns, save himself a lot of embarrassment and have Tamar killed without anyone knowing the wiser. Considering his behaviour so far, we would almost expect that's what he would do. But, But that decision is not without consequence. There is, there is a cost. He knows that in denying his possessions, he will in a sense, essentially be denying his identity, denying his authority. And Tamar, who according to the Leverett law, was now his wife, she was carrying the heir of his clan. So if he chose to burn her, he would be burning his wife and he would be burning his own flesh and blood. It's pretty significant, isn't it? That's a big decision to make. Well, seems... And fortunately, Judah makes the right one. He finally relents. I don't know if he had a choice, but I guess he did. But I don't think God gave him much of a choice. He, he couldn't keep running from God. And isn't the imagery amazing? So as he repents, as he admits his unrighteousness, he realizes how far he has fallen. He takes back ownership of his authority. He takes back ownership of, of his identity. And better yet, he now has an heir to carry on his bloodline. What Judah thought was a shameful, lustful act with a temple prostitute, God turned into a blessing and a promise. And put yourself in Tamar's shoes as well. She's about to be burnt for deceiving Judah. And yet, the only possessions that she has that could save her from that judgment are the ones that she has and she gives 
to Judah. She's not only saved from death, but she now carries the rightful heir. She now has an inheritance. She's no longer without an heir. Is that amazing? Isn't that an amazing story? What a crazy, gritty, messy, powerful story. So let me try and sum this up. If we read further into Genesis, we see that Judah's life is transformed from this moment. He returns, from, returns to his family and he actually becomes a leader and a spokesman for his brothers. He takes on the responsibility of the family affairs and he even pledges his own life to his father to vouch for Benjamin's safe return from Egypt. Judah's leadership through this time is, is clear and when we turn to Genesis 49, <clears throat> we see that Jacob speaks a blessing and a prophecy over Judah. And that, that prophecy is in relation to his, uh, his tribe being the royal blood of Israel. I'll just quickly turn, I won't read the whole of all of 49, I'll just read from verse 10. Oh, sorry, no, let's go back. Um, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tributes come to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Judah handed away his staff, he gave it away to a temple prostitute, and God gave it back to him through Tamar. And then the promise was that the staff would never depart from him again. You see, although Judah was running away, God hadn't forgotten him, and he hadn't given up on him. And just like my story of Seth on the slippery dip, he let Judah fall, but he used it to confront him and rebuke him. And right at that vital time, right where things looked irreparable, God used Tamar's desperation to catch Judah, to turn him back around and to set him back on his feet, giving him a second chance that he didn't deserve. So let's go back to Matthew 1. What is Matthew trying to show us through this story? I think it's pretty simple. The tribe of Judah, the royal tribe of Israel, was not started in righteousness and power. It was started in utter brokenness and repentance. And God used the least likely person, a childless widow like, called Tamar, to bring about his good purpose. So as the band comes up, we're going to share in a time of communion. And I, I want us to have a think about the characters we've just heard about in this story. So if the band wants to come up.
Maybe as you come to communion today, you find yourself like Tamar, so aware that your future is hopeless, but so desperate to find your identity, to know where your inheritance lies. Or maybe you come as Judah, broken, sinful, and weak. Maybe you're running from your responsibility. Maybe you're struggling with sexual sin. Maybe you're trying to force a situation in your own strength. You know in your heart what the Lord is showing you in this story. But the devil will be using those sins those weaknesses to whisper in your ear telling you that you're a failure and that you're not worthy of God's grace and mercy in your life. And I want to go back to the image of the signet and the staff and the cord because Christ has given us some imagery too to remind us of where our salvation rests. He gave us the bread and the wine, his body and blood, to remind us that it's only through Him that we have an inheritance. It's only through Him that we have an identity. It's only through Him that we can repent and be free from our sin. Jesus Christ, the servant King, came to destroy the power of sin and death, that we might have eternal life and inheritance in His kingdom, the kingdom of God. If we learn anything from this story, God doesn't use perfect together people. He uses people like Tamar and like Judah. Tamar was desperate for an inheritance. And Judah had to come to the end of himself. He had to stop running. He had to lay his life down. So let's take some time to think about that, that story and to remember that, that we have a gracious God and He's with us here today and He's speaking to each and every one of your hearts and He is gracious and merciful. Let Him search your heart. Let Him speak to you. Let Him point out those things that you need to surrender to Him. And if you do have something you want to pray about, then I'll be up the front here and we'll have a few other people up the front that, that would love to pray for you. So let's take some time. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.